Chapter Ten of Beverly of Graustark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beverly of Graustark by George Bar McCutcheon. Chapter Ten. Inside the Castle Walls. Bright and early the next morning, the party was ready for the last of the journey to Idlewise. Less than twenty miles separated Ganlook from the capital, and the road was in excellent condition. Beverly Calhoun, tired and contented, had slept soundly until aroused by the princess herself. Their rooms adjoined each other, and when Yetive, shortly after daybreak, Stolen to the American girl's chamber, Beverly was sleeping so sweetly that the intruder would have retreated had it not been for the boisterous shouts of stable boys in the courtyard below the windows. She hurried to a window and looked out upon the grey-cloaked morning. Postilions and stable boys were congregated near the gates, tormenting a ragged old man who stood with his back against one of the huge posts. In some curiosity she called Beverly from her slumbers, urging the sleepy one to hasten to the window. "'Is this one of your friends from the wilderness?' she asked. "'It's France,' cried Beverly, rubbing her pretty eyes. Then she became thoroughly awake. "'What are they doing to him? Who are those ruffians?' she demanded indignantly. They are my servants, and—shame on them, the wretches! What has old France done that they should call to them? Tell them you'll cut their heads off if they don't stop. He's a dear old fellow in spite of his rags, and he— The window-sash flew open, and the tormentors in the court below were astonished by the sound of a woman's voice, coming, as it were, from the clouds. A dozen pairs of eyes were turned upward. The commotion ended suddenly. In the window above stood two graceful, white-robed figures. The sun, still far below the ridge of the mountains, had not yet robbed the morning of the grey, dewy shadows that belonged to five o'clock. "'What are you doing to that poor old man?' cried Yetive, and it was the first time any of them had seen anger in the princess's face. They slunk back in dismay. Let him alone, you. Guts, see that he has food and drink, and without delay. Report to me later on, sir, and explain, if you can, why you have conducted yourselves in so unbecoming a manner. Then the window was closed, and the princess found herself in the warm arms of her friend. I couldn't understand a word you said, Yetive, but— I knew you were giving it to them hot and heavy. Did you see how nicely old Franz bowed to you? Goodness, his head almost touched the ground. He was bowing to you, Beverly. You forgot that you are the princess to him. Isn't that funny? I had quite forgotten it, the poor old goose. Later, when the coaches and escort were drawn up in front of the Rallowitz Palace ready for the start, the princess called the chief postilion guards to the step of her coach. "'What was the meaning of the disturbance I witnessed this morning?' she demanded. Gartz hung his head. 
We thought the man was crazy, Your Highness. He had been telling us some monstrous lies, he mumbled. Are you sure they were lies? Oh, quite sure, Your Highness. They were laughable. He said, for one thing, that it was he who drove Your Highness's coach into Ganlook last evening, when everybody knows that I had full charge of the coach and horses. You are very much mistaken, Gartz, she said distinctly. He blinked his eyes. Your Highness, he gasped, you surely remember. Enough, sir. France drove the princess into Ganlook last night. He says so himself, does he not? Yes, Your Highness, murmured poor Gartz. What more did he say to you? He said he had come from his master, who is in the hospital, to inquire after your health and to bear his thanks for the kindness you have secured for him. He says his master is faring well and is satisfied to remain where he is. Also, he said that his master was sending him back into the mountains to assure his friends that he is safe and to bear a certain message of cheer to them, sent forth by the princess. It was all so foolish and crazy, Your Highness, that we could but jibe and laugh at the poor creature. It is you who have been foolish, sir. Send the old man to me. He has gone, Your Highness, in frightened tones. So much the better, said the princess, dismissing him with a wave of the hand. Gartz went away in a daze and for days he took every opportunity to look for other signs of mental disorder in the conduct of his mistress, at the same time indulging in speculation as to his own soundness of mind. Ganlook's population lined the chief thoroughfare, awaiting the departure of the princess, although the hour was early. Beverly peered forth curiously as the coach moved off, the quaint, half-oriental costumes of the townspeople, the odd little children, the bright colours, the perfect love and reverence that shone in the faces of the multitude impressed her deeply. She was never to forget that picturesque morning. Baron Dangloss rode beside the coach until it passed through the southern gates and into the countryside. A company of cavalry men acted as escort. The bright red trousers and top boots, with the deep blue jackets, reminded Beverly more than ever of the operatic figure she had seen so often at home. There was a fierce, dark cast to the faces of these soldiers, however, that removed any suggestion of play. The girl was in ecstasies. Everything about her appealed to the romantic side of her nature. Everything seemed so unreal and so like the story book. The princess smiled lovingly upon the throngs that lined the street. There was no man among them who would not have laid down his life for the gracious ruler. Oh, I love your soldiers, cried Beverly warmly. Poor fellows, who knows how soon they may be called upon to face death in the Dawesbergen Hills, said Yetive, a shadow crossing her face. Dangloss was to remain in Ganlook for several days, on guard against manifestations by the Axphanians. A corps of spies and scouts were working with him, 
and couriers were ready to ride at a moment's notice to the castle in Idlewise. Before they parted, Beverly extracted a renewal of his promise to take good care of Balgo's. She sent a message to the injured man, deploring the fact that she was compelled to leave Ganlook without seeing him as she had promised. It was her intention to have him come to Idlewise as soon as he was in a condition to be removed. Captain Dangloss smiled mysteriously, but he had no comment to make. He had received his orders and was obeying them to the letter. I wonder if Grenfell has heard of my harem scarum trip to St. Petersburg, reflected Yetive, making herself comfortable in the coach after the gates and the multitudes were far behind. I'll go you a box of chocolate creams that we meet him before we get to Idlewise, ventured Beverly. Agreed, said the princess. Don't say agreed, dear. Done is the word, corrected the American girl airily. Beverly won. Grenfell Lorry and a small company of horsemen rode up in the furious haste long before the sun was in mid-sky. An attempt to depict the scene between him and his venturesome wife would be a hopeless task. The way in which his face cleared itself of distress and worry was a joy in itself. To use his own words, he breathed freely for the first time in hours. The American took the place of the officer who rode beside the coach, and the trio kept up an eager, interesting conversation during the next two hours. It was a warm, sleepy day, but all signs of drowsiness disappeared with the advent of Lorry. He had reached Idlewise late the night before, after a three days' ride from the conference with Dawesbergen. At first he encountered trouble in trying to discover what had become of the princess. Those at the castle were aware of the fact that she had reached Ganlook safely and sought to put him off with subterfuges. He stormed to such a degree, however, that their object failed. The result was that he was off for Ganlook with the earliest light of day. Regarding the conference with Prince Gabriel's representatives, he had but little to say. The escaped murderer naturally refused to surrender, and was, to all appearances, quite firmly established in power once more. Lorry's only hope was that, the reversal of feeling in Dawesbergen might work ruin for the prince. He was carrying affairs with a high hand, dealing vengeful blows to the friends of his half-brother, and encouraging a lawlessness that sooner or later must prove his undoing. His representatives at the conference were an arrogant, law-defying set of men, who laughed scornfully at every proposal made by the Grostarkians. We told them that, if he were not surrendered to our authorities inside of sixty days, we would declare war and go down and take him, concluded the American. Two months, cried Yetive. I don't understand. There was method in that ultimatum. Axfain, of course, will set up a howl but we can forestall any action the Princess Volga may undertake. 
Naturally, one might suspect that we should declare war at once, inasmuch as he must be taken sooner or later. But here is the point. Before two months have elapsed, the better element of Dawsbergen will be so disgusted with the new dose of Gabriel that it will do anything to avert a war on his account. We have led them to believe that Axvan will lend moral, if not physical, support to our cause. Give them two months in which to get over this tremendous hysteria, and they'll find their senses. Gabriel isn't worth it, you see, and down in their hearts they know it. They really loved young Danton, who seems to be a devil of a good fellow. I'll wager my head that in six weeks they'll be wishing he were back on the throne again. And just to think of it, Yetive dear, you were off there in the very heart of Axvane, risking everything, he cried, wiping the moisture from his brow. It is just eleven days since I left Idlewise, and I have had a lovely journey, she said, with one of her rare smiles. He shook his head gravely, and she resolved in her heart never to give him another such cause for alarm. And in the meantime, Mr. Grenfell Lorry, you are blaming me and hating me, and all that for being the real cause of your wife's escapade, said Beverly Calhoun plaintively. I'm awfully sorry, but you must remember one thing, sir. I did not put her up to this ridiculous trip. She did it of her own free will and accord. Besides, I am the one who met the lion and almost got devoured, not yet, if you please. I'll punish you by turning you over to old Count Marlanx, the commander of the army in Graustark, said Lorry laughingly. He's a terrible ogre, worse than any lion. Heaven pity you, Beverly, if you fall into his clutches, cried Yetive. He has had five wives and survives to look for a sixth. You see how terrible it would be? I'm not afraid of him, boasted Beverly, but there came a time when she thought of those words with a shudder. By the way, Yetive, I have had word from Harry Anguish. He and the Countess will leave Paris this week, if the baby's willing, and will be in Idlewise soon. You don't know how it relieves me to know that Harry will be with us at this time. Yetive's eyes answered his enthusiasm. Both had a warm and grateful memory of the loyal service which the young American had rendered his friend when they had first come to Graustark in quest of the princess and both had a great regard for his wife, the Countess Dagmar, who, as Yetif's lady-in-waiting, had been through all the perils of those exciting days with them. As they drew near the gates of Idlewise, a large body of horsemen rode forth to meet them. The afternoon was well on the way to night, and the air of the valley was cool and refreshing, despite the rays of the June sun. Idlewise at last, murmured Beverly, her face aglow, the heart of Graustark. Do you know that I have been brushing up on my grammar? I have learned the meaning of the word Graustark, and it seems so appropriate. Graw is grey, hoary, old. Stark is strong. Old and strong, isn't it, dear? 
and here comes the oldest and strongest man in all Graustark, the Iron Count of Marlox, said Yetive, looking down the road. See, the strange grey man in front there is our greatest general, our craftiest fighter, our most heartless warrior. Does he not look like the eagle or the hawk? A moment later the parties met, and the newcomers swung into line with the escort. Two men rode up to the carriage and saluted. One was Count Marlanx, the other Colonel Quinnox of the Royal Guard. The Count, lean and grey as a wolf, revealed rows of huge white teeth in his perfunctory smile of welcome, while young Quinnox's face fairly beamed with honest joy. In the post that he held, he was but following in the footsteps of his forefathers. Since history begun in Graustark, Aquinox had been in the charge of the castle guard. The Iron Count, as he sometimes was called, was past his sixtieth year. For twenty years he had been in command of the army. One had but to look at his strong, sardonic face to know that he was a fearless leader, a savage fighter. His eyes were black, piercing, and never quiet. His hair and close-cropped beard were almost snow-white. His voice was heavy and without a vestige of warmth. Since her babyhood, Yetiv had stood in awe of this grim old warrior. It was no uncommon thing for mothers to subdue disobedient children with the threat to give them over to the Iron Count. Old Marlanx will get you if you're not good, was a household phrase in Idlewise. He had been married five times, and as many times had he been left a widower. If he were disconsolate in any instance, no one had been able to discover the fact. Enormously rich, as riches go in Graustark, he had found young women for his wives who thought only of his gold and his lands in the trade they made with Cupid. It was said that without exception they died happy. Death was a joy. The fortress overlooking the valley to the south was no more rugged and unyielding than the man who made his home within its walls. He lived there from choice, and it was with his own money that he fitted up the commandant's quarters in truly regal style. Power was more to him than wealth, though he enjoyed both. Colonel Quinnox brought news from the castle. Yetif's uncle and aunt, the Count and Countess Halfond, were eagerly expecting her return, and the city was preparing to manifest its joy in the most exuberant fashion. As they drew up to the gates, the shouts of the people came to the ears of the travellers. Then the boom of cannon and the blare of bands broke upon the air, thrilling Beverly to the heart. She wondered how Yetiv could be so calm and unmoved in the face of all this homage. Past the great hotel Regentkins and the tower moved the gay procession into the broad stretch of boulevard that led to the gates of the palace grounds. The gates stood wide open and inviting. Inside was Jacob Frash, the chief steward of the grounds, with his men drawn up in line. Upon the walls the sentries came to parade rest. On the plaza the royal band was playing as though by inspiration. 
Then the gates closed behind the coach and escort, and Beverly Calhoun was safe inside the castle walls. The Iron Count handed her from the carriage at the portals of the palace, and she stood as one in a dream. End of chapter 10